Okay, look, let me tell you about our queen. Who's our queen? No? Elizabeth II. Are you aware that she visited Adelaide in 1963? Are you aware? We'll have the first picture. Here she is when she came. Things were different back then, you see. Cars, you know, hadn't been uh, invented. But no, who will move to the next one? Uh, she didn't really come on a donkey. Here she is. But she came to Adelaide, and, and this was news to me, the suburb of Elizabeth is called Elizabeth because it's named after our queen. You, you know that, didn't you? Yeah, and it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah. And, and so the queen visited Australia, and she had a lovely welcome. And I tell you that because the king, the king visits the capital, Jerusalem, okay? And there's an amazing scene. There's palm branches. Thanks again, Emma and Maxine, just for bringing those. There's palm branches. There's worship. There's exclamations of jubilation, okay? There's people welcoming Jesus crying out to him, all in the city. And then we're left wondering, what's going on here? What's it about? We call it Palm Sunday. What is it really about? It's what we're looking at together. Our heading is the triumphant entrance, or the Palm Sunday entrance. And here's a heading, and it's the only one we're going to take from this passage in John 12 that Des read for us so nicely, Des. Thank you. The heading is, Jesus sets in motion the act of greatest love. You're probably thinking, eh, that doesn't sound like Palm Sunday. But listen up, continue listening rather. Jesus sets in motion the act of greatest love. So verse 12, verse 12. The next day, the crowd that, that had come for the feast, okay, had heard that Jesus was on his way. Okay? So this is all heading up towards a great finale. This Jerusalem is the capital. It's not only the capital of Israel, the country. Jerusalem is the capital of what? It's the capital of Judaism. It's the capital of their faith. This is where it all happens. What's there? What's in Jerusalem? The magnificent temple. And it's not like our place of worship, this beautiful sports hall, you know, which has multiple purposes and anybody can walk in, you know. I mean, Lee's here. No, 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 no. The temple, you know, had designated areas. It was the very place where the presence of God descended once a year where people met God. It was where worship took place in the form of sacrificing. That's what I said earlier. We mustn't, mustn't relegate worship to singing. I know we call singing worship. It's okay to do that. But we mustn't relegate worship to only singing. These people worship God when they brought the lambs to the temple. We worship God in, in the way we do life. Singing is one of the ways we worship. We're worshiping right now in how we're listening or not listening, as the case uh, may be. But I'm sure we're listening, aren't we, Nikki? Uh, okay, and so, so here's the city. Oh, we know you listen, because you were sniggered and the horrible jokes about myself. Uh, and so look, 
any Jew worth his salt would make an annual visit to Jerusalem, particularly for the feast of Passover. It's the one feast. If, you, if you're going to get to Jerusalem once in a year as a part of your worship as a, as a Jew, as a good Jew, you'd get there for Passover. Wherever you were in the kingdom, you'd make the journey for Passover. So here in the capital, there's at least two to three million people back in those days. The city is full of worshippers. Okay, and it's into that situation, there's probably not 2.7 million people just there where Jesus is coming in, but in the city at the moment, the population has increased vastly because of the feast. Verse 13, so the crowd, so it's, it's got to be a big crowd. If there's nearly 3 million people in the city, there's a big crowd gathering now for Jesus' entrance. This crowd, this huge crowd, okay? Verse 13, took palm branches, okay? Here's a form of palm is, is a generic term for branches that look like that, okay? You know, it could be anything, you know, date palm was probably what they, what they used, okay? So they took possibly date palm, palm branches, and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Okay, different language. What language is that? It, yes, thank you, Emma. Hebrew. Emma always, she's great on the theology course. She knows all the answers. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, it's Hebrew. Okay, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This is... This is big stuff. It's dynamite language. Seriously. Okay? The king? You know, if, you say, if you call someone king in Jerusalem, what are you doing? You are challenging the Roman kingdom. That was a big thing. This is huge. Hosanna we're going to see is huge. So here they are, waving the palm branches. Jesus is coming in. Okay, he's riding in, we're going to see in a minute. And here's what Luke writes, Luke the doctor. He writes in his account of this in Luke 19.37. And Luke, because he's a doctor, he can, he can be sure. He always gets all the detail. You know, he's one of these detail persons. You want your doctor to be a detail person. Well, let's get a new doctor, okay? And here it is. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Luke explains that at least this gathering is as a consequence of Jesus' miraculous activity. We don't see many miracles in the West. We do see miracles, but it seems fewer. Who knows? But one of the things miracles seems to do in our Western environments, it creates more confusion and uh, questions and answers often. In the East, in the Middle East here, the miraculous had an impact on people. It, it got their attention. And here they are, they're gathering to, 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 to listen to, to, to this man or to welcome him. They've seen his miracles. In fact, there's one particular miracle that has probably led to this huge crowd? This is a hard question. There's one particular miracle that's probably the catalyst for this crowd. Jesus has just done it. It had a, it had a revolutionary impact. It was a miracle like they've never seen before. Does anyone know what miracle that was? Jesus' best miracle, except his own resurrection. Which was? Does anybody know what Jesus' greatest miracle that he did before his own resurrection? 
Thank you, Sylvia. Absolutely. It was his most spectacular miracle. This man had died. How long had he been dead? Almost. Four days in a hot Middle Eastern climate. What state would a person's body be in who's left in a tomb in a hot climate for four days? Terrible. You see, a lot of us can imagine miracles when it's with, you know, if he just died and his body's intact, we could imagine that he could be come back from the dead, couldn't we? But who can imagine someone coming back to life whose organs have decomposed? That's like beyond miracles, isn't it? Jesus turns up day four of Lazarus's decomposition. And we, we said this on the, the on the theology course on Thursday, didn't we? When he raised Jesus to li- uh, Lazarus to life, he had to recreate Lazarus's body because all those other ones were shot. He had to recreate them on there in location, there and then. You know, when he said, when Jesus stood at the tomb and said, "Lazarus, come forth." He regenerated Lazarus' flesh and organs. Then and then, instantly. And that was the same voice that said at the beginning of the beginning of the world, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. What do you think Jesus was saying about himself when he could speak? creation into, into, into existence when he could speak Lazarus a new body what do you think he was saying about himself to the crowd who, who witnessed that I'm God it was my voice in Genesis 1 and I'll prove it to you Lazarus come out and, and he came out what do you think his flesh was like probably like a baby's seriously they were like wow you know what harsh weather, we know it in Australia, you know what harsh weather does to our bodies. Look what it's done to me. <laughs> Seriously. And here's Lazarus. Look, freshly made. And, and word of this has ricocheted. This was just a couple of days ago. Word of this has ricocheted across the city. Because this was just outside the city, you see, just very close. And so there's a massive crowd. And, and they're shouting this because, because they're shouting these words because the crowd has concluded what? About Jesus. He's the king. Who have they been waiting for? For generations and for generations, who have they been waiting for? The Messiah. And here's a man, and they've heard reports. Okay? And now, a couple of days ago, some of these, no doubt, are the hurdle saw a man being recreated. And here they are shouting, okay? They took palm branches and went out to meeting him, shouting. This is jubilation. This is expectancy. There's real faith here. This is enthusiasm. I was going to amaze. Uh, Greg told me to watch a cricket recently. How everybody gets excited about the cricket, not me. I just sat there and just watched in silence, didn't I, Greg? Almost. And then we bring them to church, and it's like, I don't want anybody to hear me saying, 
Get loud. Jump up and down. Wave your hands in the air. Grab a palm branch if that suits you. Okay, these people were, were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we've already said Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word, Hosanna. We don't use it very often, we ought to. What does it mean? Have a guess. Not quite, Sylvia, thank you. Good guess. Anybody else? Just throw something out. Praise the Lord, it's very close. That's spot on. Just checking the answers hasn't come up or something. <laughs> I know sometimes you guys cheat, but don't, don't tell me. You have a private joke on Montez, don't you? Okay, save us. Save us. Okay? This is acknowledging that Jesus has spiritual significance. He, they want him to save them for God out of the their predicaments. Look, it's, it's, it's from Psalm 118. O oh Lord, save us. O oh Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people are quoting. The reason they're quoting these words is because our hymn book is huge. We don't really use hymn books these days, do we? I've got, I've got a, a database. Look at that, the Aussie way of saying it now. Okay, I used to say database. <laughs> That's how we say it in the other country, isn't it, Emma? Database, okay? Okay. Uh, is on my computer with all these songs. Back then, their hymn book was. The Jewish hymn book was. The book of. It's in the middle of your book. Thank you, Emma. The book of Psalms. That was their hymn book. They sang these. And so here's Jesus. They're singing a well-known hymn. Because they knew that that hymn, that hymn, that song, that psalm, Psalm 118, was a messianic psalm. What does that mean? It was a messianic psalm. It was a psalm about the Messiah. And so the fact they're quoting it to Jesus is telling you that they've worked out Jesus is the Messiah. And save us, they're proclaiming. Save us. And uh, the other line, blessed is, and this is, wow, this is revolutionary language. I'm not just using that in the way that we use it as a superlative. Oh, that's revolutionary. Half of us haven't got a clue what we mean when we say that. What is revolution? The overthrow, and it's used generally politically, isn't it? The change or overthrow of government. This is revolutionary. Blessed is the king of Israel. You didn't say, you know, that would be like when Mugabe was in, he's, he's out of power, isn't he? Let me get destroyed. When he was in power in Zimbabwe. Is he out of power? No. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, he is, isn't he? I thought so. Just imagine going into the capital and saying, You're out, mate. Get out. It would be, it'd be dangerous for them to be saying, Blessed is the king of Israel in Jerusalem, in the capital of a country that's owned, occupied by the Romans. And you knew, that, you knew the Romans owned the country because everywhere you turned, what did you see? An armed Roman soldier that took, had tactics of you, threatened you, and they were quick to stick people on crosses. Really? And so this is revolutionary, but they're shouting it. It's cryptic in some way because they've understood, well, they've got something of a picture that this Jesus 
that they're welcoming into their city, it's like a coronation. They're almost saying, and they are saying it, they're saying, Jesus, come and be our king. And they ought to have been saying, come and be the king religiously of our faith, but they were most probably wanting a new king politically. Can you see that? Because the Jews, the Jews hated Gentiles. But they hated, more than they hated the Gentiles, they hated the Romans. Seriously. They were terrible, brutal oppressors. Look, if you're Italian, you're lovely. Uh, Italians aren't like that, are they? But the Roman Empire, seriously, brutal, brutal. The Jews hated them. And so there they are calling Jesus to oust the Romans. That's what they're doing. They think he's coming in here because he's, he's coming to set up his kingdom, to set up a new kingdom. But here's the bizarre thing. They're welcoming him as their king. But how did kings ride into cities in, in those days? Well, let me ask you. You saw earlier in that picture of the queen. It's gone. Riding in on a donkey to Elizabeth. Although she didn't really ride into it. You can just snap to it now. And just go up to it. There you go. Look. You know. <laughs> there she is. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Uh, but if she came, we saw her at the Commonwealth Games a few we, uh, years back. Guess how she came? What mode of transport? In a limousine. Yeah, beautiful. I'm sure she drove around in a limousine in, in Adelaide. Okay? In those days, in the Middle East, in the Roman Empire, how did Roman generals, victorious ones or kings, enter their city? What form of transport? Chariots or horses, white horses too normally, signifying, that's why Jesus, what is Jesus riding in Revelation? No, he's riding a horse. A white horse. Why do you think he's riding a white horse? Because you came as a victor. Roman generals rode back into the city on white horses as signs of their victory. That's why in Revelation, Jesus is riding on a white horse because he's coming back to the world as a victorious king. But at this juncture, how's he riding into the city? On a lowly donkey. It's saying something of the kingdom that he's bringing. He will come on a white horse when he returns. But at this juncture, his role isn't to set up an earthly kingdom to oust the Romans. He's come to set up a kingdom where? Thanks, Sylvia. There. It's something that the crowd just isn't prepared for. They just haven't got their heads quite around this. And that's why he's coming. Look, it's from Zechariah 9. This is another messianic quote of the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes. The king, your liberator, your messiah. Righteous and having salvation. Hence the saving bit. But he's coming. Gentle. And riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. 
Jesus' coming, you see, was nothing like anyone is expecting. He came with meekness, gentleness, warmth, love. He did the miraculous. And he established his kingdom. He did. He did establish his kingdom. But not in Jerusalem. But in the hearts of a new community. A called out community. Who forsook the temple. It's why it was destroyed in AD 70. Because it was finished. Who forsook the temple. Because now we were to meet God. Not in a physical temple. But where, did they, where were they now to meet God? It's in John 2. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Him. He is the temple. You see, God had stepped out of the temple. That was the point. You know when the curtain was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross from top to bottom? We will only ever think it was so that we could get in. So you could access the presence of God. But no, he was. No, 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 no. He was so that God could get out. It was God saying, get me out of here. I'm going to be no longer confined to this one little destination and no one can come and see me. I mean, who's the only person that could go and see God? The priest, once a year, in fear and trepidation, with, with the blood of goats and bulls. And God is saying, I'm getting out of here. And I'm walking around. What was, that's what Jesus was doing, wasn't he? Walking amongst people. Hey, who wants a king? Aloof. And inaccessible. I want a king that I can sit down with. That will take an interest in me and my problems and concerns. And so, Jesus coming here is showing us the nature of his kingdom. And here's the thing, even when he comes on his white horse at the end of the world, he'll be the same Jesus. He'll be the same Jesus. The same kingdom. And so here he is, setting up his kingdom. I was going to say, look, I won't uh, focus on him now. And that we'll move over that illustration of the car, Naomi. It's not relevant now. So uh, go to John 12, 37. Okay. Here's an issue with the crowd. John 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence. It's unbelievable, isn't it? They still would not believe him. You see, faith has stratas or levels. It's one thing to have, yeah, I have faith. You can say, I have faith that Jesus existed. And that's good. But that may not get you into heaven, you see. It's not just merely faith in Jesus' existence. It's got to be faith in Jesus, the person. And what person is he? We've said it already. What person is Jesus? Who is he? God. Anything less than that. And your faith isn't worth 
the paper is written on. Seriously. You can have as much faith in Jesus, but if it's not faith that he's God, it's worthless. It's voice. It's how, we said this before. It's how you identify cults. Any religion that, that preaches Jesus but doesn't preach his God doesn't call you to worship him doesn't call you into relationship with him doesn't call you to make Jesus the king of your heart it's a cult it's less than Christianity and it will not save you Jesus is God what did he say? anyone who has seen me has seen God. What did he say? Didn't he say, I and the Father are one. Have I been with you this long? Philip, that you're still asking to see God. Hasn't the penny dropped? Or the cent dropped? Does that work in Australia? Has the, has the cent dropped? It doesn't work, does it? I'll go back to good old English. Has the penny not dropped? How can he say Show us the Father. Don't you get it? I am the perfect reenactment, the perfect physical presence of the God that you worship. I am He. Me and the Father are one. And so look, as much as they've understood the, perif- the peripherals, they haven't quite understood that Jesus isn't just another man of God. They've had many of them in their history. They haven't quite understood that he's not just another prophet because you didn't worship prophets. You just listened to them. That was it. You didn't have an intimate personal relationship. You didn't make them the king of your heart. You didn't bow down and worship them. No prophet worth his salt would allow that. That's all they rang Jesus says. They didn't quite understand that the Messiah wasn't just another prophet. But the Messiah was God visiting his creation. And so look, even after the miraculous, and that's what it means, they still would not believe. They would not believe that God was standing before them. And just a couple of days later, five days later from Sunday, by the Friday, the crowd, the two million crowd, maybe some who waved palm branches, shouted Hosanna, were now shouting, Matthew, John 19. What were they shouting? Crucify him. The same, very same voices perhaps. They were shouting Hosanna, save us. And now shouting, Crucify him. Shocking, isn't it? And so finally, in verse 16, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. What do we do with this then? What's the significance of Palm Sunday? You see, here's the thing. 
Jesus had been avoiding Jerusalem like the plague for months now. He was always ministering up far away. If he ever felt threatened, he disappeared. He always kept away from Jerusalem because the Jews there were trying to kill him. And he ministered in more secluded environments. He hushed people. He didn't want people to spread the news about him. He tried to keep his locations disclosed. It was much easier in those days when he had got mobile phones and, and ABC News. But the fact that he's now coming to Jerusalem and not just sneaking into Jerusalem, goodness sake, how's he doing it? Talk about making a scene. What's he doing? What's he doing? Time to announce the new coming in by. Yes, we are going, and that's by. It's t- that all that's coming, but it's time for what? By what? How's all that going to happen? What's the mechanic? It's now time for. It's now time for the cross. That's the significance of Palm Sunday. This is Jesus who's been avoiding Jerusalem, who's done every which way he can to get out of the hands of the, of the religious establishment, who, the Jesus who was hiding his identity, doing everything he could to be covert. Now, riding in as a king with the public, with millions of people in the city shouting, This is the king! This is the biggest possible scene you could make. Can you see what he's doing? He's making absolutely certain that the Pharisees and the Romans are getting ready to apprehend him. He's making sure. Can you see what he's doing? He's setting the scene. He's ensuring nothing can stop the cross. He's been as provocative as he could possibly be, so as to set in motion the cross. Because now is the time. Hence our heading. Hence our heading. What is it? There it is. Jesus sets in motion the act of greatest love. And that's how we have to read it. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible and the most powerful verse in the Bible. It ought to be our most favourite verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. What Jesus is doing here speaks most profoundly. We're going to see more about this on Friday, obviously. Good Friday, but this, first, this is the first step in that. Speaks most profoundly, most powerfully of God's love for you. And as we've already said, this is God we're dealing with. Jesus is God. And so, as much as this is for God's soul of the world, he sent Jesus, listen to Jesus' own words, John 15. Greater love, that means there's no higher love, no deeper love, no more powerful love. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Speaking about what he's about to do. Can you see what his entrance into Jerusalem on that donkey in that provocative manner is doing or saying? And these people can't really hear it. 
He's saying, I love you. This is how much I love you. I'm now setting up my death for you. I'm going to the cross for you. I have nothing to gain for myself. I do it entirely for you because of my deeply entrenched, eternal love for you. Greater love has no one than this, that he would go into a city and set the scene for him to be crucified. They should have known. Here's the thing. These theology students failed dismally. And there were great scholars amongst the Jews. Do you know some of the Sanhedrin knew the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, off by heart. And yet they missed Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. They missed all that. It was there, in their scrolls. That their Messiah, that their king, had to die. Christian, here's the application. Jesus must be king of our heart. He's come to be our king. He's going to save us from ourselves and from our sins. And in your lowliest moment, in your most difficult days, in your most troublesome burdens, in your struggles, in your difficulties and challenges and pain and suffering, And when you sometimes wonder, does God really care? You remember this, that on Palm Sunday, Jesus elected to begin or to set in motion the cogs that would eventually turn to the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. That's what he thinks of you. You're his closest friend. And one other thing about Jesus in the language he used, he didn't treat those disciples as his subjects. He called them friends. Can you imagine God being your friend and laying down his life for you? You can trust him. You can trust him with your life. With your concerns and with your issues and your challenges. And you can be certain, no matter how difficult life is and can be and will be, and he loves you. He laid down his life for you. He's going to walk through this with you. He's got your back covered. You are, you always have. You always have, you just never knew it. Experienced his love. (coughs) You have been the beneficiary of Jesus' love the whole of your life. You just never knew it. 
I have loved you, says the word of God. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I'll leave that with you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends.